Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 326 of the Running Rogue podcast. This is your host, Chris McClung, coming to you from Austin, Texas. Excited about another conversation on this episode as we're going to talk about running and physical therapy and how to not only pick a good physical therapist to add to your running team, but also how to think about working with one and how you think about working through injury. For this conversation, James Dodds will be joining me and his physical therapist of choice, Dr. Morgan Riggins, will be joining to talk all about physical therapy and help you build your physical therapy team so that you can stay healthy as a runner. Quickly, before I get to this conversation, I want to shout out my favorite running apparel company and sponsor of this episode, Run Johnji. Thanks to them for sponsoring me. I've been working with them now for actually right at six months, and I'm excited to continue that sponsorship. I will be talking about Run Johnji and their running apparel mid-episode with a coupon code for you, so stay tuned for that. Without further intro, let's jump into my conversation with James and Morgan on PT. Let's go. Welcome, Dr. Morgan Riggins, to the show. Thank you, Chris. I'm we excited. call you Dr. Riggins or Morgan for the sake of this you episode? call me Morgan. Okay. You call me Morgan. So all my clients call me. Okay. Well, I appreciate that. You are a doctor of physical therapy and someone we've met through our physical therapy community here in Austin. We love Mondo Sports Therapy, where you worked. And so that's how we got to know you. Actually, James was your patient. So it's going to be fun to kind of talk about those connections, but we're really excited to have you on to talk about runners, injuries, physical therapy, things that we can do as runners to stay healthy, essentially in this conversation. And part of what I want to do is also just educate people on what they should be looking for in their providers. Because I would contend that if you don't have a physical therapist that you know and trust who knows runners in your Rolodex as a listener, then you need to find one. And through this conversation, we're going to help you figure out what to look for. But first, Morgan, I want to get some background on you. Let's go, let's start before your physical therapy journey began. We'd love to understand more about your athletic journey. Absolutely. I am actually a fish out of water now. I am a swimmer by trade. So I grew up swimming competitively from the age of six um, all the way through 21. I swam in college. I swam for Hartwick College in upstate New York. And I played soccer and I actually competed on horses too. And then it just got to a point where my mom was like, kid, you got to pick two. <laughs> this is too much driving. So I settled for for horses and for swimming. And Swimming was the one that I put all my energy into. And then I we actually still have our horse, Levi, and he's not jumping or competing anymore, but he's <laughs> kind of, he's living the semi-retired life out in Spicewood, Texas. Wow. Uh, and so, you know, I kind of dabbled and never had a whole lot for hand-eye. So swimming was great because I could just follow that black line right down the pool. <laughs> um, and it's it's something that I I put all my energy into and then... Now and again, I still get in the water a little bit. I haven't been in the pool since uh, pre-marathon training, but I am getting ready to get back in. Um, it's just a good form of exercise, and I am naturally good at it, which is also fun. That helps. Absolutely. So when you're doing horses, you're just show jumping? Is that? Yeah, I did hunter jumpers, so English. Um, okay. And so a lot of equitation and then um, some jumping, and it's, you know, it's the black coats and the 
the the black helmet and it's all very poised and elegant. Um, and it, it was really fun. I, I grew up in Southern California and we had this amazing community at a barn called Pathfinder Farm. And that's where I grew up and got my first job. I was a working student and it's where we bought our first horse. And my mom, my sister and I all, you know, kind of shared him in lessons and uh, it was just a really, really cool way to grow up. Uh, and then we moved to Texas um, right before I started high school. My dad got a sort of a job relocation. And so Levi came with and uh, we tried a little bit of Western here um, <laughs> and I competed a little bit, but uh, it just wasn't quite the same without the previous community. And I kind of got into swimming and found my group here. and. Um, I started competing a lot less on horseback, but it was, it was helpful because I did have a lot of summer jobs and, um, you know, I'd, I'd work out people's horses and I grew up in Dripping Springs and when we moved to Austin. And so there was plenty of horse people for me to get along with. And when I wasn't in the pool. Morgan, I didn't know the horse part. Oh yeah. You. I've got this, all sorts of things. James. This is so fun. Well, I know that I'm very, very impressed with you, but, um, the horse feet, like I, I grew up exercising horses as my first job in high school uh, for a guy named Todd Sloan, but it was all, it was all Western. It, anyway, I wanted to uh, jump in on it because we don't have to sidetrack here, but I, I swear there's so much to be gained about like learning how to train horses that converts to learning how to train runners and people. And I swear one day I'm going to spend the time and extrapolate all the like, um, carryovers and metaphors and start incorporating it into my language. But I imagine there's already ideas in your head, just having had that experience. Oh, yeah. And even I mean, I look back at I started riding when I was seven. And at the barn I was at when you were 12, you could become a working student. So you would work like a day a week, and you could get a free lesson. Uh, or I guess a worked for lesson. And so we were responsible for feeding the horses um, helping younger kids get ready for their lessons and then exercising any of the, any of the horses who weren't going to be ridden that day in a lesson. And so it was really like, I mean, I, I just fell right into it. It was perfect for my very analytical, logical mind. It was like, okay, this is the task for the day. We got to get this done. Um, and it was where I really first started to cultivate my work ethic. And I just think it's cool that it was tending to animals and other people and safety, making sure people are safe. That was always a big one. I, I've got like my whole, my whole list of rules around horses and how to keep everybody safe and having a good time. And they're just, there's just such cool creatures. So it was a really, it was a really amazing introduction to animals and working with other people. And then not only like, I mean, after that, it was just job after job. I, I used to clip them for shows. And so as a 12, 13 year old, like you can make a hundred bucks shaving a horse. And that, let me tell you, is an event. It takes like five to six hours. You are covered in hair. <laughs> like you, you're for like, I'll just smell like horse hair for a few days, but I loved it. And I was pretty good at it. Like you could always tell if someone got a bad haircut, but I would take my time. And so a couple of the ladies at the barn would hire me to shave their horses because with daylight savings, they would get too sweaty and then it would get dark before we could put them in their stall. So you wanted to clip them. And uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was really cool. I love that. This is a fascinating thing that we all have in common because I grew up in a rural part of outside of Dallas and we had horses and cows behind our house, which were actually owned by my uncle who lived next door to us. But we, but I spent 
my childhood around horses and cows and and we rode western style but we had at one point a woman come and and put her keep her horse in the barn there who was an english rider and so i got to to jump on and try to learn the english style of riding a few times and it was just so couldn't be more different <laughs> in yeah. terms of how you lead and guide the horse so I have a little bit of exposure to it as well, which is kind of funny. That's awesome. Just a bunch of horse people. Yeah. I mean, but this is not a horse podcast. <laughs> I like the digression. So you swam mostly though. And at what point did you think about getting into physical therapy? I, so I originally was pre-med and I was in upstate New York and it was my junior year and I was getting ready to take the MCAT and get all my ducks in a row for that. And I sort of had this crisis moment where I was like, wait, why do I really want to go to med school? And I did not have a very, I didn't have a good reason other than the fact that it was hard to get in and I was ready for a challenge. So I took some time to reflect and I looked at, you know, what, what brings me the most joy in the world and it is exercise. And so I had in, in college, I was swimming and I was training a lot, but it's also when I did the most conditioning and weightlifting in my athletic career. And that's when I realized, wow, training on land is fun. (laughs) Like you can, you can breathe and you're not drowning underwater. And I realized my, so I came in as a freshman and I had started adding in the weightlifting with my collegiate team. And then at my first conference, I dropped the most time that I had ever dropped on my events, which as a female, as a freshman in college, it's it's hard to drop significant time. It's, as far as, you know, you tend to peak toward the end of high school in swimming, and then your goal is to kind of maintain. And if you shave off, you know, a quarter, you know, 0.2 of a second or something, you're pretty excited. And so I was dropping multiple seconds, um, five seconds on my 200 breaststroke. And so I had started to pivot and I was like, wow, this weightlifting, this strength training component is improving my performance in the pool. This is really cool. And so I was doing that for for the next three seasons. And all the while, I was a a double major and I was focused on the pre-med track. And so I was juggling a lot of different things and my grades were awesome. Swimming was going well, but I just started to get to the end of the line. And I was like, I just, I just don't have a good enough reason to continue down this whole med school path. And so I reflected on it and exercise seemed the way to go. So I did some digging and I was like, wow, I can graduate a semester early. I could go back to Austin. Maybe I'll get my master's in exercise phys from UT. And I I pitched this idea to my dad and he was like, great, Mo, like how much do exercise physiologists make for a living? (laughs) And I Googled it and it was 42,000. And he said, yep, Mo, that's not going to work. And so I, uh, got back onto Google and, you know, I, I told him, well, I could get my master's in exercise phys and then I could go to PT school and I'll be a physical therapist. And he goes, do you have to have a master's to go to PT school? (laughs) (laughs) And I, I didn't know anything about it. So I looked into, I was like, actually, no, I, I could go right now. And so he said, I think that's a great idea. And he, he has, what is it? Business weekly and business insider. And he goes, look, there's 30% growth projected for physical therapists in the next decade. And so it was pretty funny, but I always joke that it's kind of my dad's idea that I would go to PT school. And so luckily as a pre-med student, I had a lot of prerequisites and a lot of healthcare experience. 
I'd had a really kind of stacked resume for that. And so I needed, I just basically ended up graduating a semester early. And I, cause I felt like, you know what, I have a new plan. There's no sense in sticking around in New York. So I came back to Austin and I took one semester to take the last few prereqs. And then to get into PT school, you have to do significant observation hours. And it's pretty amazing. I had never even been a patient. I had never been to physical therapy. And so I found three or four clinics. I went to a skilled nursing facility and I, I volunteered and got about 200 hours um, just so I could apply. Um, and then I applied to every public school in the state of Texas because there's only one application period uh, for PT schools. And I got into Texas State, which is where I wanted to go. And the rest is kind of history. That's awesome. But you didn't just get the regular PT degree. You went to the DPT path. And how, how does the manual therapy element come in? Because is that an additional fellowship or something that goes on top of it? So explain exactly the stages you went through to get where you are now. Absolutely. So nowadays in the last 10 years, everyone has transitioned over to a clinical doctorate of physical therapy. So if you have gone to PT school in the last eight to 10 years, or you want to now, you will have to get a doctorate. And so everybody has an undergrad degree to apply. And then the doctorate is anywhere from two to three years. And so I have my doctorate of physical therapy from Texas State um, here in Round Rock. And then you can practice. So you would take your licensure exam and be board certified. And most people are practicing with that. And then just like the medical field, physical therapy now has fellowship and residency programs in different specialty areas. And so there's a variety. Um, Some people specialize in orthopedics. Some people specialize in neurological conditions, uh, women's health, uh, all sorts of different things. And so I decided to take the route of orthopedic manual physical therapy. Um, One of my previous jobs was at Mondo Sports Therapy, which is where I've encountered a lot of you guys. And everybody at Mondo has to have a fellowship in order to be there because we want to improve the quality of care and have sort of a standardization so that way we can treat everybody through similar lenses. And so it's a three-year fellowship that I did through the Manual Therapy Institute, which is a program that Peter Kroon created. And then that is then accredited by a national organization. So I actually just completed my fellowship and I literally mailed in the envelope yesterday to get uh, approved by the American Academy of Orthopedic Manual Physical Therapy. So that once they approve it, then I get to attach those letters to my name. So that's it's it's super exciting. It's been three years in the making. And it's it's one of the things that sort of sets me and others who have it apart from doctors of physical therapy. So our credentials would then include, get ready for it, F-A-A-O-M-P-T. It's a lot. You, you can just say FAOMPT for quick. <laughs> but it's wow. a lot of letters. But when I have a client who is maybe moving or is going out of state, um, the first thing I do is I go up on the, the fellow registry and I can see who fellows are across the country. Um, I'll look into my alumni network. And then worst case, I'll look into physical therapists in the town that they're moving to, and I will start to scour it until I see someone who has FAOMPT at the end of their name, because it already tells me that that individual has taken on additional training 
they've, you know, spent time and uh, invested in it. And it's one of those things where it doesn't, in our field, it doesn't guarantee that you're going to make more money. And so it's not a specialization that equals an increase in pay or sort of a lot of motivation to go and get it. It's really, if you have it, it's because you want to be a better PT and you want to get your patients better. And so for me as a provider, if I'm trying to make sure that everybody's getting what they need, I can feel really confident. Hey, I'm going to refer you to this individual. Even if we haven't met, I already have a good idea that they're invested in their career. They're invested in being a really good clinician. And I can feel, I feel more confident sending someone because that's one of the more challenging parts of my job is I know I may be able to take really good care of this client, but it's also my responsibility to make sure that I can give them a good recommendation and and help them find a good PT down the line. And so it's one way that helps um, in addition to other certifications and and schools, different programs. Um, There's several really reputable PT programs that helps me um, when I need to refer people. But so that, that is the, the biggest credential that I'll have hopefully in a couple of weeks when they process my application. So you're talking about the profession and the credentialing, and um, yeah. I'm just going to shine a light on you real quick, though, because um, I thought about this earlier when you said it, when you said um, you could make $100 clipping a horse, um, I thought you were going to say it was five to six minutes, like as in like you were raking in so much money, and it is not... Um, I want the audience to know how genuine you are because it's like the same part of you that's like, you know what? Um, um, it doesn't guarantee that you're going to necessarily make more income. It's just that you take your career. I, I sense that in you and in my interactions in you, but it's even, it's even evident in that, that side of you that wanted to tell more of the story on the five to six hours of clipping in the horse and all the work that went into it rather than just the $100 in a kid's pocket. Um, you could have taken that either direction, but you went the work route. And I just think that's part of who you are, Morgan. Absolutely. And really, just to go back to kind of why I did the fellowship, because it is it's three years, it's a lot of time. Um, I loved every second of it, I would actually I would I would do it again, if I didn't have to take the test, maybe. Because um, <laughs> I, I love it. And what it gave me is it gave me the tools to diagnose better. So in PT school, you're trained to be a generalist. And you come out and you are competent and you are average at orthopedics, at working in a hospital, working with geriatrics. So you're okay at everything. But when you have someone who comes in and, you know, their training and their race is in four weeks and you think, hey, I think this might be bone stress, you better know if it is or not, because you're possibly sending someone out uh, to compete when they might have risk of having a fracture and a a long-term injury. And so it, it was something I pursued because it gives me uh, the structure and the framework to make really good decisions clinically. And I feel really confident as a younger therapist going out. And if something walks into my door, I can diagnose, is this an orthopedic problem? Is it musculoskeletal? Do I need to refer them out? Do we need imaging? Do we need systemic testing? And then if it is orthopedic, what is the tissue? So what is it bone? Is it muscle? Is it joint? Is it nerve? And why? Why is it irritated? Because that's one of the problems is a lot of times I'll have clients come to me who've already been to other PTs or who've been to other providers. And, you know, they're like, well, I've I've saw, I've seen a lot of providers and I've tried this and I've tried that. And I like to ask, so so what what is the problem? What do they what do you think you have? What did they diagnose you with? 
And unfortunately, a lot of times they can't tell me. They don't know. They're like, well, they said I need to strengthen my glutes and maybe it's tendonitis and I'm, you know, I'm doing these exercises, but it's not really getting better. And, and so I think that if we are going to treat people better and get them back to their sport or activity choice faster and prevent injuries, you have to be really, really good at diagnosing what the problem is and why it's happening, because then you can be more effective. Then you're not just kind of throwing the kitchen sink at it. That's the difference between like Morgan right out of PT school. I had all these ideas and I'm like, I see this and I see this and we need to get this stronger and we need to do this. And then I come out of the fellowship and I can very systematically run through my checklist and I'm like, okay, it's either this or this. All right, it's this. And we're going to treat that tissue with X, Y, and Z. And then we're going to treat the reason why it got irritated and it becomes a lot more efficient. It's easier for people to understand if if you see a provider and they don't really know what you have, then your shot at understanding it is becomes a lot dimmer, right? And so that's that's Amen. probably the number one thing that is important to me is I want people to understand why there's the problem, why it's happening. Um, and that's what I'm really passionate about is I think everybody needs to understand how their body's put together, what puts them at risk for the injury. And if if you are coming in with pain, let's tease out what specific pain driver it is and then we'll you know put together a game plan treat it and prevent it from coming back it's so critical and it's the absolute difference between a good pt and one that isn't as good is that desire to truly understand what's wrong and understand the root cause and if you're in austin and go to mondo sports therapy see anybody there that's the approach they take because that's what peter and katie drive into everybody there and and it's tricky to tease it out sometimes. I remember I saw you with Peter one time. That oh, was yeah, probably you a doozy. Yeah, six, I don't you know, maybe six really months hard ago. That night, Chris. <laughs> yeah, like six months ago. Just a tiny little pain I was having behind my knee. And I've learned to be proactive about addressing these things. And Peter gets me in whenever I need him. And you happen to be there and you guys were figuring out what was going on, ended up being a little nerve issue that we worked through. But but not understanding that, not understanding that root cause leads, leads you to just throwing random things at the wall. And, and if you have a PT that doesn't tell you clearly what they think is wrong and why, then you may need to find a new PT. I want to also answer the simple question of what is manual therapy? Absolutely. So manual therapy is a, it's a whole treatment approach that includes hands-on therapy. And so it includes joint manipulations, joint mobilizations. Those are techniques where we put our hands on different joints and we're going to put them in different positions in order to improve the mobility or the motion. So for example, just like you can bounce a ball on your finger and jam up your knuckle, you can jam up any of the joints in the body. They're all meant to move. And sometimes they move just enough to get a little stuck. And then you're trying to run and walk and do life with joints that aren't as mobile as they're designed to be. And so a manual therapist who's trained in joint manipulations and mobilizations can go in and then basically facilitate the correct motions happening at the joint. Some of them include a thrust technique. And so you may hear a pop or a cavitation, and then we're going to recheck and see, is the movement restored? They're super, super uh, effective. And uh, they're, you know, in conjunction with tissue specific exercise, that kind of combines sort of our, 
our manual therapy approach uh, that both you and James are familiar with because you've been patients before. Um, but it is, I'm glad you asked that, Chris, because manual therapy is such an umbrella term that you may go seek a manual therapist and then all they do is cupping or massage or tissue work. And sometimes that can be helpful. But if you are training for a marathon and you have an ankle dysfunction and your ankle joint is locked up and it's not moving well, you need someone to to basically pull on your foot and manipulate that ankle so that you can optimize motion and take uh, stress off other tissues. So that that's why, you know, if you're looking at um, a provider, if you see the FAAOMPT, that's a really, really good indicator that they'll manipulate and mobilize joints. Sometimes there's also COM uh, PT, like a certification in orthopedic manual physical therapy. So really, it's the, the combined term of orthopedic manual physical therapy that can be helpful. Um, my particular fellowship that I went through is it's uh, we have osteopathic training. So we have osteopaths that have come over from the UK and have trained our faculty who have then trained us. I had the pleasure of doing a course with one, Daryl Herbert. He's amazing. Uh, he can mobilize and manipulate any joint in the body with such refinement, almost just the smallest amount of force. Everything's very comfortable, very safe. Their whole goal is how do we do less, basically? How do we use our bodies to take up motion in a joint so that we apply the tiniest little bit of force and get the improvements we want? It's safer. It's more comfortable. It's not like a big rack and crack situation that can be scary and unnecessary. And so a lot of times people ask me, well, like, is it, are you a chiropractor? Is it a chiropractic technique? No, I'm trained with osteopathic medicine. And so as far as trying to navigate that, it can be kind of confusing. And so as far, it, it's just important to ask questions, right? So if you, if you listen to this podcast and you're like, Hey, I'm, I'm going to go see this provider, just ask, right? Do you mobilize joints? Do you manipulate joints? You know, I've heard maybe an ankle manipulation can be helpful. What does that look like? Do you think I'm a candidate? Um, because there, I have found in my practice that it's, it's fantastic. It's half the equation, right? It goes great. But if my client then doesn't do the exercises or the movement retraining that needs to follow up, then we've got only half of the equation, but it's integral for runners because unfortunately you're just pounding the pavement over and over. Things are going to get stuck. Yeah, and the combination of being able to manually manipulate the joint while adding the movement and strength elements that go around that to make sure that it's the mobility is maintained and the strength is restored is the powerful combination that allows people to to get where they need to be to be healthy again. One or the other isn't often enough. Agreed. I think about a simple ankle sprain, even a mild ankle sprain can snowball into a really big disaster for a runner because, you know, the joint ends up jammed, jammed up and then you need ongoing mobility work as well as re- strength retraining to get that joint functioning properly. And if you don't do any of it just by itself, it's not necessarily going to get where it needs to go. And so a combination of being able to get that joint moving again through manual therapy and then do the exercises to restore strength and mobility so that you can resume running normally. It, it makes all the difference in being able to get back to a healthy place. And most people, I think don't think of it that way. I remember having a terrible ankle sprain playing basketball in high school 
and went to an orthopedist. It wasn't broken, bad sprain, threw me in a boot, which was the worst thing you can do to it. And it is still a problem for me today because there was no PT, no manual therapy to open up that joint. And so it's something I now continue to face as a runner that I have to constantly keep mobilized. But, But that's just one example. I have a similar example. So water athlete, right? Off season, I'm going to go for a trail run. And so I I go for a trail run one mile in, I hit a rock, I roll my ankle. This is pre-PT Morgan. So I decide to run two more miles on it. And by the end of my run, and then later that night, it's the size of a softball. Like it's just enormous. I had to go to my winter formal in sandals, I think. And no PT, I didn't get treatment for it until I was in PT school, I think. And just like you, Chris, it it's now, that's my Achilles heel, literally. <laughs> like, right. That's the ankle that because I didn't have treatment and I didn't know to seek it, um, it's what I'm managing. And and it's it's good though, because I have an awareness and I know what I need to do and I'll go and I'll actually have another colleague manipulate my own ankle because um, you don't know what you don't know. And we right. didn't know back then. Right. But now- People will know. So you brought it up, your running journey, swimmer, turn runner, now marathoner, not yet a half marathoner, but marathoner. marathon. Talk about that that transition to your own running journey. Absolutely. So let's see. I guess I'm going to be iffy on timelines. I think it was 2021. Is that right? No, 2020. 2020, I did a 10K with my dad. So... He runs a little bit, like three or four miles a couple times a week. I thought it would be fun for us to train for a 10K together. Neither one of us had ever done that. And so I think we trained up to five miles. We didn't quite get six. And so we did it in Dripping Springs in November of 2020. And that last mile, we we got to the end and I was like, Dad, we really should have done six. (laughs) That was brutal. Uh, But we had a good time. And it was something fun to do together. So I was like, Hey, why don't we find a half to do? And so I am a long-term planner. So it's November. I picked a half the following November, Georgetown. Uh, And I thought, okay, since we don't run a lot, we need a lot of time to prepare. And so we got on, you know, we got on the books, I registered us and, and really January, I started training. This was also as I was wrapping up taking care of James as my patient. And so he's kind of having fun with like, Ooh, like Morgan's running two miles, Morgan's running three miles. And, um, I don't know, looking back, I just didn't realize I was already pretty fit. And so by March I did, I PR'd my longest run. I did 11 miles on my birthday at 4am before going to the clinic. And that was the, the, that was the same week that James was like, Hey Morgan, like, you know, we could probably roll your half marathon training into a full. <laughs> and I was responsibility. I am the one who registered, right? And so, but he kind of put the idea in my head, and I guess I was like, you know, it's March. I'm running 11 miles. Things are going pretty good. I'm actually kind of enjoying running for the first time in my life. It it turns out that you know it, there is a plan to make it easier. That was really helpful. I I was like James, if I'm going to run a half, I just run harder and faster and longer, right? And he's like, no, we're going to have a new plan. So he put together my half merit. Well, we did like a little short priming phase. Then we did the half cycle. And then we had plans to do my marathon 
uh, cycle going into Houston of this year. So Houston 23. And it was one of those things where I ended up actually having a course for my fellowship the same weekend as the half. They moved Georgetown half last year. So I didn't get to do it. Um, so I went straight from, you know, 10K to, to full marathon. And it was awesome. It was one of those things where I didn't wake up one day thinking like, man, I'd really like to do a marathon. But I was treating runners every day. And every once in a while, someone would say something. And I was like, huh? Like, here, this is my favorite. They're like, yeah, I, I did 11 with a close. And I was like, you didn't have clothes on? Like, what? <laughs> I was like, what? Like, I was like, so normally you don't. And so it was one of those things where I had picked up a lot of running lingo and I knew enough combined with my physical therapy training to give good care. But it was just still kind of like, I'm a big, I got to be in it. Like I got to understand it. And, and that's when I can do things better. And so when James was kind of like, you know, Warren, we could really listen to, <laughs> I like James a lot. And we'll talk a little bit more about him as my patient in a minute. But so I kind of was like, you know what, like, sounds good. Let's do it. And, and it went really well. I definitely trained for too long as a novice. Like it was just, by the time I needed a little bit of a break, it was too late because we were, we were gearing up. Um, but it went really well. I had one, one mild to moderate injury. I had an Achilles tenosynovitis, which was very cool to self-diagnose. I, I made a training error. I did not, I, I, I missed a run and I made it up without talking to James. And then like one day later, my, my Achilles tendon, it wasn't the actual tendon. It was the lining of the tendon that got super irritated. And it's one of those things where it's, it's not cool for people to have this injury, but when one walks into your door, you're always like, Hey, Hey student, come over here. I want to show you this. Like it's, it's a really cool injury and a lot of people miss it. And so I had seen patients with it. I had not had one myself. And I, the next morning I woke up and I like felt my Achilles and I was like, Oh my, I came into work and I had one of my colleagues. I go, Hey Josh, feel my ankle. And he goes, Morgan, what did you do? <laughs> so I basically trained for a, a full marathon, gave myself a tenosynovitis so that I could treat my runners better. <laughs> but I, I, I rehabbed the injury. I had to take five days off and it, it was fascinating. I will always treat Achilles injuries better now because I, I understand kind of firsthand how, how things can go wrong so quickly. And James gave me really good advice. He said, Morgan, you don't work for the spreadsheet. The spreadsheet works for you. <laughs> I will never forget that. I quote him all the time, but it was, it was really cool. And it was one of those things where I had been training at that point for, this was November. I'd been training for like nine months with maybe one or two breaks. It, I, I didn't long-term, you know, I just thought I would need more time and it, but it went really well. I recovered. I ran Houston. I really wanted to break four at mile 16. I was like, Oh, my tailbone's hurting. And why am I doing this again? I was like, do I really need to hold that pace? And, and I think for a split second, I was like, you know, what? why don't you just enjoy this? You only get one first marathon. Um, and it was great. And so, and the cool part was I ran it without injuries. Um, and it was a really, really cool experience. And now I am so much better equipped to relate to my runners 
Um, and first of all, I can at least, I know the right terms, which is great. You guys are wearing clothes. This is excellent. Um, sometimes. And sometimes, right? And it's cool because we have such a big running community in Austin. And as someone who historically was like, oh, like running is so hard. Uh, you just need consistency and you need a good coach and you need a good PT. And you should have seen me out mobilize, trying to mobilize my own ankles, like on long runs. It was pretty hilarious. Uh, but it was a really cool introduction to the sport. Uh, and then I needed a very long emotional break. So I've run maybe like 10 times <laughs> and I'm going to get ready to, to train for 3M. So many things were learned. I want to throw two things in there. One, um, we were concerned about, you, you mentioned what you last said, the, uh, the emotional break. We were, we were a little concerned with burnout because, and I, and I warned her about my personality. It was like in March, uh, um, of that year. And I was just like, Hey, like, if I write something within X amount of time, like tell me no, because I'm getting too excited and we'll get ahead of ourselves. But you basically trained when it, whenever the half got moved, you trained from March through January. And it was just this like ever increasing continual ramp. So we were, we were a little concerned about that. So the emotional break was needed. But what I really wanted to emphasize was it's no small, small thing. The impetus of her like running life where she mentioned doing a 10K with her dad that's a theme. Um, as I was getting to know Morgan, she would like during the Thanksgiving time, she had made a whole meal plan of workouts that she has her whole family do. And then it was, I think the 12 days of Christmas, you had 12 workouts where it was like, she's the wrangler. Well, their whole, her whole family like does all this work and her sister's a yogi and, and a nurse too. I was like, my first images of, or thought about you was like, y'all are healers. The, the Riggins are healers and they get their work done, but you've, kind of wrangled the family into a lot of activities just as being who you are. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. They, they get PT every day. (laughs) (laughs) I I bring my work home with me. Some PTs don't treat family. I do. My first semester we had the health summit. So I put together a presentation of all the things I learned in my first semester that I thought everybody should know. And my dad said, Morgan, a hundred slides is too many slides. (laughs) (laughs) So I had a hundred slide PowerPoint, like, and it was anything from wound care to blood pressure and cardiac risk factors. And it was just everything. I was like, guys, this is basic stuff. We got to know this. And so my mom and sister loved it. My dad was like, I need snacks. Uh, But it just from the beginning, it's something that I've wanted to share with other people. And so that of course translated physically too. And we do every, every big holiday, we do a Riggins family workout and and it's cool now because I can be like, okay, so-and-so has a wrist thing. So-and-so's back flared up last week. And then I'm designing it based on everyone's levels. And I was a personal trainer for a while there too before becoming a PT. And so I had, I've been making them work out for a long time. And now it's just all uh, more intentional. So I'm excited. I already told everybody this Thanksgiving is going to be a hard one. I got soft last year because I was, I was tired from marathon training. But... <laughs> I've already told them they should probably train up for it. <laughs> Start now. So let's quickly talk about how you and James met. Absolutely. So I, I inherited James from another PT um, at Mondo. Uh, I think just schedule wise, I work Saturdays. So he got on my schedule and um, we immediately just kind of hit it off, got along really well. He would roll in and we have you know these little phys- philosophical conversations that 11 a.m. And he was coming. I kind of got him at uh, 
a few a few months out from his foot surgery. And so we had kind of already gotten through the initial inflammation, swelling, pain. He had done a lot of that with the previous PT and he was doing a lot better. He was out of the boot. He was mobile, but he still lacked some range of motion, strength, and he hadn't really gotten back to like a full return. You know, how are we going to do the rehab to then return to running? And so um, that was really fun because I just got to start to make him work. And so he, he, I think he kind of was like, oh, wow, she rose my feet, but then she's also going to write a really horrible workout for me. Um, but we had a blast. We had a really good time. Um, he, we celebrated all the small wins, which was what made it so fun because that's what I do every day is I'm like, Hey, we got five more degrees out of your big toe. This is awesome. And he was just as excited. Um, and he got to start sharing with me about his running community and, um, what he was up to in the world. And I felt like we just kind of became instant friends and I was sort of his guide um, to, to get his strength back and balance. And I made him do all sorts of weird stuff. That was really fun for me to get creative and challenge him and get him in the gym. Um, and then we, we gradually brought him back to running. And, um, you know, of course, since nothing had run in several months, his knee started bothering him. So then we moved up the chain and we started taking care of his knee and looking at some muscle imbalances. And he really, we kind of, you started with the foot and then we came out with like, okay, this is your full body program. This is what we need to work on so that you can get back to doing what you want to do. Um, and he did really, really well. And we had fun while we were doing it, which is my favorite kind of client. We, we had a blast because I was making reels of every workout because everything she gave me was so like interesting. But no, the beginning really, I remember the day, like one of my first visits, um, I was sitting and doing a calf raise and just like moving from sitting to do a calf raise to standing and seeing light under my heel was a big, was a big moment. Like to, to think like at that point I'd already run 25 marathons and it was like, man, this is my quote win. Like it was quite important to me. I chose a, a surgeon, um, Dr. Stephen Walters, who was a runner. I had actually paced him in a marathon and I was like, I want my surgeon to know that this is not a game. And my, my, my end result is not to walk around my apartment pain-free. Like if, if I would rather not even have the surgery altogether if I can't um, get back to running and, and being an athlete, generally speaking. Um, and then also with a PT, it was, <laughs> I told him, I was like, I'm going to Mondo after this. And I had shot Katie, like it was serendipitous to land with you because I had shot Katie a message um, and I met Justin. But yeah, he went on like a two-week African vacation. And when I saw how much my calf atrophied, I was like, I'm not skipping. <clears throat> I think I was going twice a week um, early mm -hmm. and then we went to once a week. But I was like, it was very serendipitous when I landed with you and I was like, hmm, and I was reading everything on online. Um, but I knew instantly it did not take long. I started telling all my athletes, I was like, I found this PT. She 100% has the keys. I'm, I'm no longer trying to grab the will because I have a coach's mind and I'm quite passive <laughs> and kind, like I've, I'm a middle brother. And so I know how to quote, play the role of let the expert be the expert, but I'm sitting over there and I'm somewhat cynical in the back of my mind. And I'm also reviewing, 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 reviewing. And very quickly, I felt as though you cared about my success as much, if not more than I did. And I was like, I've got the PT. And so I was like, hand the keys over. You didn't quote, just guide it. You ran the whole thing. And I did not question one thing that you said. 
it was a kind of a perfect marriage because you were the runner coming in. And at that time I hadn't run at all. I I'm all strength. And so it was this beautiful blend of you want to run, but I know I need to get you strong. And so you had to buy into the strength training that I put you through. And I remember, I mean, you're doing it now, but a couple of years ago, it was harder to get you to do it. Um, so the more, <laughs> the more fun and exciting and like Graham worthy, the exercise, the more you, the more you would do it. And so I had a blast with like, okay, let's, we got to make this interesting. Cause that's one of the things I have to do is I have to figure out how, like what makes this client tick or what can I, what kind of motivation do we need? And like you said, you were just trying to do calf raises in sitting. Right. And so we needed to find, well, what, what sort of stepwise progressions can we do to get you from where you were when we met to then being able to, I mean, I remember when you did your first 13 miler back, um, it, I mean, it was, it was a very long road, but it was a, it was a blast. I so enjoyed working with you and I was actually kind of sad when you got all the way better because then you didn't get to come in and see me, but you sent me all your runners. So that made up for it because they're all amazing. Uh, and that's how I, you know, was keeping tabs on you out in the world. I'm like, Hey, did, has James done any strength work? <laughs> Anyone seen him? You know, what's funny is I was, I, I was feeling all the way better and I was obviously running long runs. Um, and I was sad too. I wasn't actually going to stop, but um, that was summer of 22. I got laid off and I was like, and lost my insurance. And so I was like, well, I need to like put on the blinders. And I was like, I cherish this and I want to go every week still. But I was like, I cleaned everything out of, like I had to like stop everything and just that. focus on like finding the next role. And I did all that, you know. Um, and then I was in motion and stuff. So I just continued to lift, but it was like, yeah, I was, I had thought about it multiple times. I was like, I don't know when I'm going to quit. Um, and I just rather kick that can and not think about it now. <laughs> <laughs> Quickly for context, James, what surgery did you have? Just so people know. Um, shoot, I forgot the technical name. It would be in my paperwork, but anyway, I, I had a bunion. And so he, um, cor- lapidus procedure, lapidus, mm-hmm. um, it was a lapidus procedure. And I don't know if that piece includes the bone graft, but he not only corrected the toe and shaved off some of the bone. And like he said, my nerve was really annoying and that I was not easy to work with, but about, um, four inches up my foot, um, there was some joint that he removed or he removed something and he put in a tiny little bone graft about the thickness of, I think a nickel, like very small. Um, but that's what put me in a boot so long. I mean, a calf so long that then had me in a boot so long that caused my calf to atrophy to the point about, um, cause you're waiting on bone to heal. And so it was so delayed that like the first time they put on my cast, um, it was tight. It was very snug around my calf. And in two weeks when he replaced it, I could put my entire hand in the calf into the cast. Um, that's how, how much it had shrunk. Um, and then he rewrapped it all super tight and two more weeks of atrophy. And so it was like my left calf was about the size of my forearm. And this is no ego whatsoever. I have no idea, but I have huge calves. So to say that, to, to like put that in comparison, that it was as small as like my forearm, I was like, this is crazy. Like uh, it, it was wild to look at them, uh, the right and the left beside one another. And I was, there were times where it was like, I have no idea if that ever gets back to equal. But we did it, Morgan. <laughs> You did it. Well, and part of doing it was you and your PT not being willing to settle for less. You know, I think part of the challenge people go through challenging injuries is that 
they might hear from certain providers or even others that say, well, you're never going to be able to do X again. And I think if you listen to that, just like we talked about, James, with the episode on longevity, if you listen to the limitations of others and and don't try to strive for more, then it ends up limiting you. And you didn't limit yourself. Came back, did it again, did another marathon, added added to your resume there, got 26 in. So pretty cool that you guys were able to work through that together. Before we continue that conversation, I want to talk about my sponsorship with Run Johnji. Johnji Running Apparel. That's Johnji spelled J-A-N-J-I. For those wondering, they are a running apparel company that creates beautiful and functional running apparel. Whether you're trying to run for fun, you're running for adventure, especially for adventure, or whether you're running for performance, their stuff looks great, performs well, and of course, 2% of all revenue goes back to support water projects all around the world. And as a bonus, they're showcasing artists and cultures and countries all around the world through their designs, which are really cool. So go check out their gear. You can go to runjanji.com. They've released all their fall, fall stuff, have new great long sleeve and pants and outerwear pieces that I want you to check out. I'm actually trying those out myself when we get our cooler weather here in Austin. So go to their site. You can use my code ROGUE15, that's R-O-G-U-E-1-5, for 15% off. Go check it out. Now back to my conversation with Morgan and James. Here we go. Let's talk about other rogue runners, though, because, you know, James sends everybody to Mondo, to you. I send everybody to Mondo, mainly because regardless of who you're working with there, you're going to get a good experience that's grounded in understanding the root cause, understanding exactly the diagnosis, and then, of course, doing all the right things to make you healthy. But we're a, a tricky bunch, Morgan, runners, because there's just so many things that you can see with a runner, you know, nerve stuff, you know, tendon stuff, other soft tissue, bone stuff, if you have bone stress involved. So speak generally to your experience treating runners and how challenging that can be. Absolutely. So I really, I kind of put my runners into two big categories. So the first category is they come to me anywhere from four to six weeks out from their race and the wheels are starting to come off and they're, they're really panicking. <laughs> and it's one of those things where, you know, the, the first couple of questions I have with any runner is, okay, how long have you been running? Who do you run with? Do you run alone? Do you train with a group? What's your weekly mileage? What is your, what's your mileage been in the last four weeks? Like I'm trying to collect data about how much running they're actually doing. And then I always got to hit them with the, are you doing any strength training? And then I ask specifics. What, cause a lot of people will say, yeah, I'm doing strength training, but I want to know, are you adding weights? Is it single leg, double leg, body weight? How many times a week? Uh, what kind of load? And then we get into the nitty gritty about their symptoms and, I can ask just a handful of questions and I will already come out of it having a real, like, really good idea as to what tissue is irritated. And so the, that first bucket of runners and, and I've had, a, I've worked with a lot of rogue runners and I've got several who that's how we first meet is, you know, we're a month out and we have to try to figure out, is this something that we can take care of in time for the race or is there a bigger issue here? And then the most important of course, is I need to rule out any high risk injuries. So high-risk injuries would be bone stress or significant tendon problems that I'm worried that if you do go race 26 miles, that something worse will happen. 
And so it's my responsibility as a good PT to say, you know, that's my least favorite conversation to have with runners is I think this is a bone stress injury and we need an MRI now to decide if you can run or not. Now, it all comes down to the timeline, right? It depends on when I get them. So most of my rogue runners that I've worked with, that's how we first meet. We, we meet and we're in crisis mode. And I've, there's only been, I mean, unfortunately, there's been a few where it's like, no, you have a bone stress fracture. We've confirmed it with imaging. You will not be racing. You will not be running for six to eight weeks so we can allow that to heal. But most often, I've been lucky and I've gotten people where, okay, we have time and we can get you across the finish line or we just need to really rehab things hard. If it's just, if it's something more mild, then you can run uh, and we'll do the necessary steps to get you across. Now, the other bucket of rogue runners that I get are, we've already done that. We've gotten through one race and then they're like, Morgan, I'm going to come see you when I start training again. And and these <laughs> are my right favorites. This time. <laughs> I'm, I'm, you know, just because... We, I already know you. I know your medical history. I know your injury history. And you've kind of discovered that, hey, it's harder to fix things when you get closer to the race. <laughs> and so instead of sort of waiting until the wheels come off, why don't we take a more proactive approach? So I usually, you know, if, if it's a month out from the race, we get you through it. And then you have to come see me a couple weeks after to kind of clean up whatever happened. Uh, then I say, okay, I want you to hit this strength program, you know, while you're not training. And then when you start training again, you just need to come in and check in just to prevent problems. And so I, that's my other category of runners is people who are more in kind of like a maintenance mode. Like they're either gearing up to start training or they're in the middle of training and they may only see me once a month um, or once every six weeks, or I have a few who, you know, depending on their mileage, they may want to see me every other week where we can check in, I can manipulate their ankles, whatever joints are involved with the tissue that they struggle with. Um, and so it's really a matter of, hey, let's prevent something scary like bone stress um, or Achilles tendon problems or things that really take you out of the game. And so I think that my experience with runners is we kind of help bridge that gap of, you know, we don't have to seek treatment when it's 10 out of 10 pain. Let's go ahead and, you know, I start to educate and it's like, hey, if you have some symptoms and it goes away in a couple of days, cool. If it lingers for a week, reach out. I email and text and call my patients more than a lot of PTs I know just because I'd rather you just ask than avoid it. And so a lot of times it's like, well, no, I'll just see if it goes away. Like, you know, with running, it's like something always kind of hurts. Right. And so I get that a lot too, where it's like, well, I just thought it would go away or I took a day off. I took a week off. And then it came back. And so I think the biggest thing with my runners is I just try to educate. And so we end up talking a lot. Um, and then the whole goal is if we've rehabbed one injury, I want you to leave feeling like you have an understanding of how you're put together. Just like you kind of mentioned, you're like, you, you got this previous ankle injury when you were in high school that has followed you. So if you know that going in, you know, hey, I need to be on top of my ankle mobility, my single leg strengthening. If I drop the ball on that and I have any inklings of symptoms, I need to go get it checked out now. And so that's the biggest thing. And I, I think just as far as runners in general, you know, low back, hip, knee, ankle injuries are so common kind of across the board, a lot of ankle and foot and knee for sure. Uh, and a generic sort of like, you just need to get your glutes stronger is not always 
the the prescription of choice. And so every runner I have come in, we do a movement screen. So I'm looking at you single leg squat. I'm looking at you single leg hop. I'll watch you run. We're looking to see, is there anything really glaring? And then we're going to get into the nitty gritty. Um, and then we'll diagnose what tissues irritated. And then now that I have run a marathon, I used to say, okay, I'm going to need you to do these strength exercises three times a week. Now that I've trained for a marathon and trained for a whole entire year, it's not feasible. I am, I'm so realistic now. I cannot ask someone who is training, you know, 40 to 70 miles a week to also do three days of heavy strength work. So we aim for two. My goal is two and we make it as efficient as possible. I want these specific running groups and then we plug in one or two individual specific exercises for whatever their either recurring injury is or something we're trying to prevent or something they may have little symptoms with. And so I want them on a strength program. And then when you're not training, I say, hey, if we can get a third day in, great, because you're not running as much or you're, you know, started in between, in between races. Uh, but that's the biggest thing is, you know, and a lot of runners know this after they've had an injury, they're like, okay, I got to do my strength work. Um, but I'm, I'm realistic. We have to find out what works best for you. And I have ideals and what I prefer, but we have to adjust that for each runner, each individual need, lifestyles, schedules. Um, for example, I just had a, a client reach out. He's like, I, I don't want to go twice. I don't like going twice. And I was like, fine, can you go once and we'll make it super, super hard. And it'll feel like you did it twice <laughs> in one <laughs> session. And that works for him. So that was great because, and I just, I just, I've done it. I've lived it. And I also had an injury and, you know, it's one of those things where even myself, I now know these are staples that you need to do as you start to train again. I'm going to say that guy's pretty brave because, um, I learned firsthand, um, don't ever tell Morgan, you got a little more in you. (laughs) (laughs) She can ratchet up really fast like really fast (laughs) yeah i think i think i've really enjoyed working with runners um i enjoyed it even before i started to run a little bit myself um just because personality wise we get along great like you guys are disciplined you're committed you like to move like to exercise you want to you set a goal and you're training for it and that that's my personality right there and so I, I was already thinking, what am I going to train for after 3M? <laughs> you know, it, it's so just as a group, we get along really well. And then I think that my, my love and enthusiasm for strength training makes it a really good fit uh, because I get it. You know, so, some of my runners I've converted. They're like, man, the strength stuff kind of is fun too. But a lot of them, they're like, okay, fine, fine, I'll do it. And that works great. I actually told my runner the other day, it was the day of my fellowship final exam. I told her, if you go to the gym, I will run three miles before my test. And you bet your butt, I ran my three miles. And I was like, the whole time, I was like, man, why did you, you should have done two. Like, you really haven't run. <laughs> um, but it's, it's a good fit. We get along well. Um, and I have a lot of experience now treating a variety of injuries. And, you know, if someone comes in and they're like, Morgan, I, I think I have posterior tendon, you know, I have posterior tibialis tendonitis. And, I asked them three or four questions and that points me exactly where we need to go. This is actually a real case. I had someone come in and she's been, she's new to rogue and she's training for her first half and she's around 40 miles and she'd been building up nicely. Um, and she got on Dr. Google and diagnosed posterior tibialis tendonitis. And 
I did my exam and I was nervous because I thought she had bone stress uh, in her navicular. And so I was like, you know, we, we really need to get this imaged if we want to continue training because the navicular is an area of high stress. It, it can have non-union fractures and poor healing because of poor blood flow. And so she got imaged and not only did she have a stress reaction in her navicular, but she actually had another stress fracture on the other side that just wasn't symptomatic. And so, you know, it was guiding our, our focus on her pain on the inside of the foot. And so that was a case where it's not good news. You know, I have to say, hey, we're not going to run for six to eight weeks, but I'm so glad that we caught it. And because that is going to, we're going to rehab this injury and we're going to get her back and she'll be able to train again. Um, but it's much more significant if you continue to train on bone stress. And so with her, we actually look deeper. We're like, okay, how are your hormones? Are you getting your period? How's your fueling? And so we spent a lot of time together and I connected her with an RD and she had a session with a registered dietitian. And we found out that she was, she was trying to cut weight and kind of do some body composition goals while training for her first half. And it was the most running she's ever done. And she just wasn't consuming enough calories. Um, and that put her at risk, uh, for bone stress. And then, um, but the cool part is now we're, we're getting her back. She actually has been uh, running a little bit and she's doing really well. And she has a much better understanding of, Hey, these are all the things I need to consider. I need to consider my hormone health, my fueling, my strength training. She wasn't doing any single leg work. Um, and so that was a really, a that was a positive, right? She's not doing that half. We're going to train for a spring race. Um, but that's just one example. And, you know, I would say of the things I treat most commonly in runners, it's not that bone stress is most common. It's just, it's a sport that puts you at higher risk because every time you land it's three to five times your body weight on each side. Um, and in distance runners, especially we can have some of those high volume under fueling metabolic issues at play. Um, so bone stress is a big category. And then tendon problems for sure. And then the vast majority of what people come in with is just a joint dysfunction, which is like what I talked about earlier, where you jam up a joint in your ankle or in your knee or in your hip, and then you're trying to train on a joint that's not moving as well as it should. That over time is what leads to muscle overuse injuries or nerve irritation or tendon problems. So that's why I think, like you said in the beginning, Chris, if if we can connect our runners with good providers and they can start to educate themselves and learn more about it, then you can you can prevent bigger injuries. If you just if your ankle's just locked up, come in, we'll manipulate it and and you'll be back to training. Whereas if you continue training with it, that's when bigger issues arise. Yeah, I mean an ankle specifically, I mean, because of that sprain, I have left ankle mobility issues. I'm constantly managing that. I know when it's jammed. I can feel it. It pops a certain way. And that's when I text Peter and he, he yanks on it and we get it going. And so that way I've prevented so many downstream issues now because I know how to deal with it when it pops up versus just waiting for the injury to come. So I want to start to pull out applications here and some of this will be recapping. But, you know, number one, as I mentioned at the top, having that provider that you can go to, that physical therapist who can be your partner because, you know, yes, you're going to go to them interventionally, but you want to be able to know someone you can go to at any point at the earliest sign of injury so that you can work through it proactively and get it in a situation where you're not having to take a bunch of time off and continue training through 
without having to have big gaps so that you can get it all done. I like to say there's no such thing as a perfect marathon cycle. There's no such thing as a perfect half marathon cycle. If you're training rigorously for any goal, you're going to have issues pop up. That's just a part of it. And the question is, how are you managing that? Proactively yourself by doing the strength and mobility things you learn, but having a PT that you can consult at the first sign of an issue is just so, so critical. And then you have that relationship. So they know you, you know them. I mean, Peter, I've been working with Peter for, I don't know, 10 years. If I go to him because he's seen how my body works. I mean, within literally oftentimes 10 minutes, we can get to the issue. He mobilizes it, gives me some things to do. I'm out the door. It's a really simple process. And I only see him maybe once every three to four months, you know, when I have things pop up. And as a result, I'm more healthy along the way. So having that is critical. You talked about already some credentials to look for. Another one I want to, you know, hit on is obviously the strength component. Let's dig into that just a little bit more. James and I were talking about this on our last episode as sort of brass tacks, something you absolutely have to be doing as an aging runner, but really something really everybody should be doing. What would be your general recommendations apart from injury for strength training for runners? Absolutely. Uh, two days a week, two days a week, heavy single leg strength exercises. And these are, these are scalable, right? To the runner's fitness level, what their baseline strength is. And so we want to have a running program that addresses the key muscles involved. So I always tell my clients, you know, we need core, we need glutes, hamstrings, quads, and then there are two calf muscles, soleus and gastrocnemius. And so right there, that's six muscles. If you want to use time or if you just don't like it, it's just six things. Just boom, get in and out. And anywhere from 30 to 40 minutes twice a week can be very effective. But it does need to be hard. Like I mentioned earlier, when you land on one leg when you're running, it generates three to five times your body weight in ground reaction forces. So if you're doing body weight squats on both legs, that's not going to load your muscles and your joints enough to sustain the demands of running. And so I want lunges, split squats, split squats where your rear foot is elevated. I want single leg leg press. Anything that we can make single leg with the equipment that you have is helpful. And to be totally honest, I need you to be in a gym. We need to load it with weight. And so there are cases where that's just not feasible. And so we can always find solutions. But in an ideal world, I have my runners going to the gym twice a week. You spend 30 to 40 minutes, depending on how efficient you are, and you knock out these six muscle groups. And it really doesn't have to be fancy, right? And I have everybody's different. Some people want variety, and there's lots of ways to load those muscles. Some of my runners do better with just, hey, hit these six machines, get in, get out, you're done. And so we need to kind of find that blend of what you like, but it's a non-negotiable. We need two days. And then if you're not training and you can put in a third, go for it. Like hit it hard when you're not training for something so that you increase your strength because it's really, really hard to train for an endurance sport and make strength gains at the same time. And that's the hardest part is when someone comes to me in the middle of training, we're going to add strength work in and I'm going to get them stronger, but it's, it's hard to accomplish the strength goal while you're also challenging your muscles and your aerobic system for an endurance sport. So we've got to basically get your strength up and then have you doing two times a week of strength work as part of a maintenance program. 
Uh, and so, for example, I'm about to start training for 3M and I just wrote my plan yesterday for my sister and I. Twice a week, we're going to hit barbell split squats with our rear foot elevated. We're going to do Copenhagen planks for our adductors and our core. We're going to do single leg hamstring curls. We're going to do standing single leg calf raises with a bar. We're going to do seated soleus raises where we're going to put heavy weight on our knee. And that is a nice routine. Now you can always do more and I will probably add in extras, but that's kind of my bare minimum non-negotiable twice a week. As far as timing goes, I prefer not to load legs heavy before a longer run or a speed workout, right? So if you're a runner and most of us do our long runs on like a Friday or a Saturday, so if you're going to do a long run Saturday, it's ideal that you would put your strength work on Thursday and maybe you do Tuesday, Thursday or Monday, Thursday. Monday, Thursday is a nice plan because a lot of us take Sundays off. So you can do strength work heavy on Monday and then sometimes your quality is in the middle of the week. So it's, it's totally fair if you don't want to load heavy the day before a quality speed workout. And so we... Most of my runners, we need to look at kind of what's your routine, how many days a week are you running, and where do we plug in strength so that it's not impeding your performance on your runs, because that's one of the reasons why my runners don't like to do it, because if they are sore and tired and then they don't run as well, um, that's a problem. So when we plug in the strength at the appropriate time, and you can do it with good mechanics, it will actually help your performance. I have so many runners now who are like, I feel strong, like my legs did not fatigue at the end of that 12 miler. It's so cool, but it does take some time for us to get to that point. And we've got to meet you where you're at. If you've never lifted weights before, then I'm going to give you a different program and we'll scale up to the point where you're doing some of those things. Speak to that, the build, how do you build into heavier lifting weights if you're starting from scratch? Well, it kind of depends on what you're starting with. So if I get a runner who's doing zero strength work, we are probably going to start with some double leg exercises, right? If I want you to do a good single leg squat, we've got to learn how to do a regular squat, right? So if you're not doing any strength work at all, then if I give you a program in the gym and I plug that in, you're going to be sore for four or five days. It's going to hurt. You're not going to have fun with it. And so we need to, you know, if you're a beginner, beginner, we're going to start with, you know, some body weight squats, some double leg hamstring exercises, double leg calf raises, uh, we're going to hit all those muscles and they're just going to either be the weight of your body as resistance or lighter dumbbells. Then we'll transition. We'll start adding in some of the machines if you have access. And then it's cool because we can progress them individually. So what I like to do is I like to program by muscle group. And so if I want you to do glutes, for example, we've got to hit glutes because they absorb shock when we land, when we run. So you would start with double leg bridges. Then you would go to staggered bridges, then single leg glute bridges. Then we're going to elevate your back and you're going to do hip thrusters. Then you're going to add a dumbbell. Then if you have a Smith machine, you're going to do heavy single leg hip thrusters with a Smith machine. So right there, there's, you know, five or six progressions where we can take any, any age runner, any level, and we can plug one in with where they're at. And then say they're having an injury and we need to regress, then we can find something if it's more tolerable. Or if they're doing better, then we go up to the next one. And the nice part, as James mentioned, there's no finish line for me. I will always find a way to make it harder. And so <laughs> it needs to be fun. It needs to be challenging. And say we take you from a point where you're not doing any strength work and we build up this routine and you get to the point where you are loading it with dumbbells or barbells or you're in the leg press or you're doing standing hamstring curls at the gym, we are going to continue to build it up because in about six to eight weeks of doing a program, your muscles will adapt. And so 
if you're only doing the same thing, then they're not going to go to that next level. And so we've got to make little tweaks. And that may be as simple as let's add an extra set. Instead of doing three sets of six to eight, let's do four. Or some of my runners, I put them on a split program where they're doing one day, very heavy, strength focused. So they're doing three to four sets of six to eight reps. And then the other day, they're going light to moderate weight and we're doing endurance. And so if you're training for a 50K or an ultra, I need you to perform for a very long amount of time. Maybe we're doing three sets of 20 reps on your split squats at a much lighter weight. So it's all very, very scalable, but it does need to be challenging if you can breeze through it and have a conversation with someone and it's not hard enough. And so we make we need to make it a little bit more challenging. And as as important to me as it is that we load it, I also am a stickler for good mechanics because if you can't do your strength training with good mechanics, then it's not going to carry over to good mechanics when you're running. And so that's why most of my clients, when they come into the clinic, we're starting with some of these body weight versions. And that's just to establish good patterns, you know, really help them feel, oh, that's what it's like to really engage my glute on this. Or that's what, you know, my hamstring and my calf need to look like when I'm in single leg exercises. And then we scale that up and they already have a very strong foundation. Yeah. So much, so much there, but it's so important. I want to talk about managing injuries for a minute. People come in, oftentimes I'm sure, you know, they're not running when they see you because they have something that hurts. And obviously if bone stress is involved, we don't want people running. Mm -hmm. But what's your general advice around running an injury, sort of trying to train through injury? How important is movement in the overall equation? Because I so often hear the story where somebody says, well, this hurts. I stopped running for a week, thought I would be better. Then they start running a week later. It's still there because they haven't done anything about it. (laughs) So talk about the importance of movement, running, and being proactive in managing injuries. So kind of generally, right? In general, I'm okay with people running if their symptoms are a three out of 10. Right. So if you're running and, you know, maybe it's your hip, it starts bothering you, you're like, oh, it's a three out of 10. Okay. Three and a half. It's kind of staying the same. Cool. Keep running. Um, the movement is helpful. It is important. Sometimes stopping is not the answer. Now, if you're running and that three becomes a four, becomes a six, seven, you're like, oh my gosh, I'm an eight out of 10 pain. Continuing your run is probably not in your best interest. Your body, that tissue is starting to say, okay, something something else is going on here. So in general, three to four out of 10 while you're running is where we want to keep symptoms. So whether you are starting to develop symptoms, because sometimes, you know, you're training and you're like, man, things are tight and it starts as tightness or stiffness. And it's like, well, I can run and it's not really bothering me. It's not pain. But then after another week of training, it's like, oh yeah, now Now I'm actually starting to have some pain there. And so we want to keep it in that three out of 10 range. And at that point, you know, that's when you need to start to be a little bit more diligent and conscious of of what you're feeling. Because if it starts to increase, that's when I say, okay, we need to get this looked at. Whether you come in for an appointment or you just reach out to a provider, hey, do you think I need to come in? Uh, The hard part, I think, is at that point, a lot of people get on Google And you can come out with a lot of different diagnoses. And so in general, aside from bone stress, most running injuries are not, they're not necessarily going to get worse with running, uh, but they're also not necessarily going to get better unless we address the, the real issues at fault. And so one of the key questions I ask people is, 
when do you feel it in your run? Do you, does it come on right away? Does it come on at the end? While you're running, does it continue to get worse? And so if you're out running and you have pain, that's three out of 10, it's okay to continue. If it continues to increase the longer you run on it, stop, right? And that, it kind of seems logical, but sometimes we're like, hey, this is the workout, I really want to do it. If, the, if it's getting worse as you continue running on it, try to take a break. Sometimes you have pain that starts when you start running and then it kind of works itself out. That is a warning sign, right? And so if you go for, if, if you have three days of runs where you're like, hey, you know, I'm feeling it in my ankle, but it kind of loosens up and it goes away. If after three days you don't feel anything, cool. If it continues, you need to seek some treatment. And really, talking to a professional who's highly trained is going to be the fastest approach. You can definitely get online and you can try some stuff, but sometimes it just prolongs the process. Uh, there are some tissues that you'll take a week off on your own and and nothing changes. You just go right back out to running and it just hurts again. Hurts again. And, and a lot of times that's with a tendon-related problem. And so if you're a distance runner, I think it's really important, like if this is something that's part of your lifestyle, which most of the times it is, start to educate yourself, right? Start to recognize warning signs. If it's if it's getting worse the more you run on it and it's achy and it hurts when you hop and it's starting to concentrate into one more localized point, that's when we're worried about bone stress. And so if you've had changes in your mileage, if you've significantly increased your training in the previous three to four weeks, that's when you know you need to start getting concerned. If you have symptoms that it's it's fine while you're running, but the next morning you have more stiffness or more pain the next day, that's indicative of more of a tendon problem. If you take time off from a tendon problem and you go back to running, it still hurts. And so with tendons, it's the load, it's the consistency of the load. And a lot of times tendon problems are common in runners. And if I educate my runners as to why tendons get irritated, for example, they don't like change. So if you take a two-week vacation and try to jump back into your normal training mileage, they may say something to you. If you decide to build up too quickly or you add more plyometrics and more speed work, then it's going to get more irritated. As far as nerves, nerves tend to not like speed work or hills. And nerves, you'll have symptoms for a long period. That's my patient when they come in and they're like, Morgan, I have plantar fasciitis. I'm like, how long have you had it? They're like, a year, five years, 10 years it's most likely going to have a nerve component. And so we need to address those tissues differently. And so I actually have a, I have an Instagram page called Dr. Morgan Riggins, where I start to break down some of these areas where, hey, you have pain on the inside of your ankle. What are some of the tissues that can be irritated there? And so I think it's important, take some accountability for your body, for your health, start to educate yourself. Sometimes people get on Google and they come in and they're like, Morgan, you know, I think I have a sciatica. And they're pointing to their front of their leg, right? Which <laughs> the sciatic nerve goes down the back of the leg. And I don't expect my clients to be experts or to self-diagnose. But if you're going to get online to try to find an answer, let's let's see if we can almost let's learn a little bit more about how our body works and what's required to run if we want to really mediate and and prevent injuries on the line. I mean, can we also just say as a general blanket rule, first of all, you can't just go to a provider, any provider orthopedic surgeon, PT, Cairo, and necessarily get good advice as a runner related to your injuries unless they specifically work with that population. Oh, for sure. You definitely can't go on Google and get good answers. 
zero, zero chance you're getting good information from Google if you have a running injury. There is zero chance. Believe me, I'm a coach. I've seen it. I've Googled stuff myself. Never have I ever Googled something and thought, wow, I just learned something about running injuries from Dr. Google. Never have I ever. So I'm just going to make that blanket statement. You will not diagnose yourself. You will not learn anything. The only way you're going to figure out what's going on with your injury is if you find the right practitioner who works with this population. It's the only way. And even then, it's still hard because it is such a tricky population to deal with. Soft tissue injuries are tricky to to figure out the difference between nerve pain and perhaps muscle or tendon pain in one area of the leg. It's really hard to tease that out. And you know, it took you and Morgan 20 minutes with me the other day to tease out nerve versus other things with my back of knee pain. And so, you know, and yet you guys are two of the best of the best. So I just want to emphasize here that this stuff is tricky. You need the right partner to help you figure it out. And you're not going to find answers on Dr. Google. You're just not. So that's my soapbox moment. I hope you agree. I I completely agree. And I think most of my runners who have worked with me long-term, I just had one, we just got him through his fourth marathon together and we hit a rhythm where I may not see you all the time, but just email me, just shoot me an email, shoot me a text. Hey, like I had, I actually had someone send me a picture of her foot. She goes, I'm sorry for the foot pic. (laughs) And, and based on where she was pointing, I was like, Hey, I suspect that you have a cuboid joint dysfunction that you should come in and we'll take care of it this week. Whereas if someone says, Hey, Morgan, you know, I'm having a little bit of discomfort in my hamstring. This is when I feel it. It got agitated with speed work. I may say, Hey, try these two or three things, see if it takes care of it. And if not, then you need to come in. Cause really my goal is that I educate my clients enough so that if they have an injury, they come out knowing how to prevent it. And they learn a little bit more about how they're put together. Because for example, you know, James, because he's had uh, a foot surgery, he is at more risk for an ankle or midfoot injury. And so what are things he's doing in his maintenance program to prevent it? What are the signs he's looking for? You've got a good rhythm, Chris. I myself know where my weak links are. And so of course I do it for a living, but I'm still conscious of it and I still can't manipulate my own back or ankle. So sometimes I need to seek care. But I do think that just knowing kind of how you're put together and how your previous medical history and how your training is influencing your body, that's that's half of it right there. I love working with clients, but I also really like when people can can help manage some of the things on their own. And so, you know, for example, I had a runner who was like, hey, my low back started to hurt after my 20. I think I might need to come see you. I gave her three things to do. And she emailed me back. She said, actually, it feels a lot better. I think I'm good. And I was like, great. Why don't you you know, work these in throughout the week. And then you just let me know if you need me. Um, Cause it is, you need to have a good provider. You need to be educated, but you also, we need to build some literacy around running and around your body so that you have a good understanding. And then you know, Hey, this is when I need to go see my provider or no, this, I can kind of manage on my own. Um, I think it's the education that, that is the biggest piece. Then if you can throw in a coach who can be the third oh, leg yeah. of the stool, who can work in the equation with the PT and with the athlete to figure out the next steps, then that's the perfect combination because, you know, I'll get, I'll get messages from PTs at Mondo and they'll say, Hey, saw this patient. This is what I think they need. 
And then I can start to help them rebuild as well from my side and modulate whatever the work is to fit their recovery process so that it all works together in a way that gets them where they want to go. Absolutely. You need a team. That's the magic. But yeah, and, and and I think it's interesting for most of us, we're not elite athletes. We're just everyday runners out there trying to get our goals. We don't think about needing a team, just like an elite would need a team of provider, coach, I mean, all the all the things, but it's it's true. If you want to get your goals and if you have big ones, then you need all of those elements to come together to make it happen. And you, and you deserve it too. That's the other part. You deserve it. Your goals are worthy enough to have a team, regardless of where your starting point. Okay. So as we start to wrap here, what are some things, we, how, what have we missed, Morgan? Have we missed any key takeaways that you would want to make sure we drive home? We kind of touched on these, but I, I did sort of reflect on my practice and my experience with runners. And I came out with five of my top tips to prevent okay. any problems. So a few will be review, but let's run through those because a couple are new. So yep. number one, we talked about the two days a week of, of heavy single leg strength training. So we hit that. That's essential. Number two, eight hours of sleep every night. So if you get good quality sleep and eight hours may be a lot for some people, but if you do, it can, it can decrease your injury risk by 61% which is wild. So remember, we always say, you know, sometimes it's in the recovery, right? It's not that you're, it's not that you're not training enough. You're just under recovered. And so that goes really, really far in the musculoskeletal world. We found that there's some research that shows that if you have less than seven hours of sleep, you're at 1.7 times greater risk of an orthopedic injury. So how cool is that? You don't need to go necessarily see a provider unless you're having some sleep related issues. But if you could just, you know, put the phones away, set your schedule so that you can get a couple more hours, especially in the thick of training, or if you're dealing with an injury, you know, a lot of times I get it, life happens or there's other stuff going on. But if you can try to boost your sleep recovery time, that's when a lot of healing happens. And so you know, as the mileage gets higher, that's when we might cut corners and cut into our sleep time. But that's really important. And I ask my clients about that a lot. What is the quality of their sleep? How much are they getting? Um, the third one is fuel appropriately. We talked about that with relation to, to bone stress, also with performance, right? And so that's not an area where nutrition is not a huge part of my practice. It's not within my scope, but I do need to help connect clients with registered dietitians. And I highly recommend you go with an RD. A lot of people can call themselves a nutritionist. I highly recommend you get someone who's licensed and, and highly trained um, and even better if they have experience working with runners. And I would add, I would add there's additional note flagging bone stress because it is something that pops up for runners frequently is in my experience as a coach, there's often a mix of issues going on when you end up, end up with a bone stress injury. Usually training load is somehow involved, ramped up too quickly, too hard overall. So there's something going on there, but then usually other things going on, whether that be a nutritional deficiency, some sort of micronutrient deficiency, potentially a bone density deficiency. There's usually other things going on. And so a lot of times when people come to me and they say, well, I've had a bone stress injury, they'll say, well, I just took my time off. Now I'm resuming. And I just need to ramp up gradually. Well, have you done the work to figure out all the root causes of that issue because usually there's more than just training load involved. And so I really want people when they have those 
injuries to take that deeper dive to figure out what else was going on there because usually it's a perfect storm of, of issues. And unless you figure out all those different elements, then you're likely going to end up in a situation again where it happens again. And so we want to avoid that. So that's just a little. Do you know, uh, do you know what one of the number one risk factors for a bone stress, stress injury is? Calorie deficiency. That's up there, but one of the one of the most number one issues is having a previous bone stress injury. Uh, okay. Well, when I suspect bone stress, well, actually, with all runners, I ask if you've had bone stress before. So you hit the nail on the head. If you've had it, you can't just wait it out, take your time off, and then expect to get right back to it because you're already at a little more risk than you were before. So any of my clients who have had bone stress injuries. We, we need to have a sort of a multifaceted, holistic approach. It's not that you can't continue to train. I have many who they haven't had them for years, but we've got a game plan. We have nutrition in check, hormones, metabolism, sleep, all of those factors, supplementation, calcium, bone density. So you're exactly spot on and it's super important. I cut you off going to number four. Oh, no, no worries. Number four, <laughs> we kind of talked about that was pay attention to your pain, Right. And so we talked about the three out of 10 rule. And then my big one is if it goes away after a couple of days, we're cool, right? All good. If it persists for a week, ask a provider, get an appointment. Even if it ends up being nothing, it's better than that rolling into something else that's going to take away from your training. And then number five, we did talk about a little bit too, but learn where your deficits are, right? If you've had bone stress before, if you've had if your right knee's always been kind of achy, why don't we figure that out before it flares up two weeks before your race? Um, if you like for me, my right Achilles is always going to be a little bit more at risk than my left on um, James toe. So we've got, you know, it's good to know where your deficits are because it just means that you're going to be doing a few things more proactively, or you're going to be a little more in tune um, so that you can prevent problems going forward. And it also means that you're going to likely have mobility work or rehab or strength that never stops related to that deficiency. So I can tell you from my left ankle that has mobility issues. It is a nonstop process for managing it. There are things that I have to do always that other people don't have to do in order to keep that mobilized so that I can stay healthy and it doesn't cause other chain, other issues up the kinetic chain. And so sometimes I tell this to people too. I say, look, you're learning things that you're always going to have to do in physical therapy because you've identified some sort of deficiency that you're always going to have to work on and manage. And I think people get in this idea that, well, I had an injury, I rehabbed it, I'm healthy now, that's it. I can kind of put that behind me and, and move on. And maybe that's true for certain things, but oftentimes it just points to a weakness that you're always going to have to manage. And the rehab that you're learning then becomes an ongoing part of your prehab so that you prevent that from coming back down the road. It's critical. It's, I, I'm literally a swimmer who's trying to run 26 miles. I'm <laughs> like a noodle. I'm like a noodle <laughs> bouncing along. So it's my low back and my ankles that lock up. And so just like you, before every run, I have one drill that I do, whether I'm hurting or not, to remind a few of my areas like, hey, hips, you got to do this. Ankles, you got to do this. Cause Wake up. It's just, you know, once you figure out how you're wired, then you're like, oh, because I mean, I had a couple of injuries and, and really from an athletic standpoint, I'm like a meathead out on the road. I, I'm not really designed for long distance running. It doesn't mean I can't do it. It just means that I have to put in a little more time 
for my stability and my strength training than, you know, someone who might be a little more rigid and stiffer and has been running from day one. So we all need to find our number. Yeah. There's a whole podcast probably on swimmers and running because it's a thing. <laughs> it's a thing. Moving from in the water, low, no, low to no impact to on, on land. That is a transition that is not as seamless as it would be, as it would seem because you've got this massive engine, but you're not ready for the loading. And so it mm-hmm. takes a big transition. I actually coach several former D1 swimmers and it is a very patient journey to get them to do what they want from a running perspective without injury mm-hmm. because they're just not ready for the load. So to me, that's a whole, that's a whole podcast we should do separately because it's actually it's actually a complicated process to move someone from water to the land, but we'll save that for another day. Could I get her to um, just hit on one? Cause you kind of touched on it. Like you were saying, Oh, I've got to get my hips to do X. And it started me th- thinking about activation and you used to have mm-hmm. me do some glute activations. Cause you're like, Dodds, you just do these simple things before you go for like a three, four mile run. If your knees at, uh, what is, what is activation? Like, I don't think a lot of runners actually get it quite get it, like getting muscles to turn on, et cetera. Can you give us a snippet on that? Absolutely. So we touched on, okay, you come in, you've got a problem. What's the tissue? Like, is it bone, muscle, joint, tendon, nerve, and then why? So the why is when we look at your movement. So for you, you came in with knee pain. It ended up being your patella. Your kneecap wasn't moving the way it should. And it comes down to your movement patterns. So in your case, your hip, knee, and toe were not stacking appropriately when you did single leg squats or single leg hops, which is going to translate to running. And so what was happening is you have a movement impairment where instead of moving optimally, your hip is deviating and you're starting to let your knee and your hip dive in, which then puts more load at the kneecap. And so the tissue that was causing you pain was your kneecap, but the reason it was irritated was because you were collapsing at your hip and your knee. And that's because you weren't using the muscles on the back of your hip. So essentially, you have a faulty movement, and then there's usually a muscular imbalance that's part of it. Sometimes it's because something is weak, and sometimes it's just because you're not using it. So for example, most of us sit for work, or in some capacity, we're sitting when we drive, we're sitting when we eat. And so some of the muscles in the front of the hip are working more often throughout the day than our glutes and our hip external rotators on the back of the hip. So what that means is we're getting all these reps in the hip in the front and not as many reps on the back. So from a proportion standpoint, we are stronger and better at utilizing the front of the hip, which means that when you load it, your hip may roll forward and dive in a little bit, and that can cause problems at the hip, knee, or ankle. And so activation would then include, okay, if, if you have that muscle pattern, if you have that movement pattern where your hip likes to roll in, then we've got to prime your glutes and you've got to wake them up because if you've just rolled out of bed, they're not all of a sudden going to start overpowering the front of the hip. And so I had you doing specific drills to reinforce that good alignment and good movement. So I had you in positions where you did stack your hip knee and ankle, and you could feel the right muscles in the back turn on. And so sometimes it's just a problem of you're not turning on the right muscles. That's what it, what activation is for. Now, sometimes you're not turning them on because they're also not very strong and you don't have as much oomph in your tank there. So we may have to take a activation and strengthening approach. So for example, 
with me, my low back hurts when I run more than 10 miles because I start collapsing in my low back. And instead of my hips doing the work, and instead of my glutes sort of pulling my hips underneath me through my swing, my low back just rotates. So what I have to do is I actually have to turn on my core to stabilize my back. I do a few drills where I practice moving my hips without letting my low back move. That's activation. I'm not going to get much stronger by doing two or three repetitions before I hit the road, but I am turning on those muscles so that when I start running, my core is like, oh, we already did a few. We know the hips are doing the work. And so essentially it's, it's training your brain to say, yes, fire that muscle now so that my mechanics and my movement looks like this. And unfortunately, it's just part of how we're put together in some of our day-to-day activities. All of us are predisposed to have some of these movement patterns. And a lot of it's just based on anatomy um, and daily activities. So if we can identify them, then we see what do you need to activate? And then we just plug those in before you do your training. You, you said sometimes it's strength, sometimes activation, and you knew the obvious answer was activation because I'm strong AF. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No, I it's appreciate true, that. Though. It's true, though. Yeah. That's something that we would identify, right? Um, I was totally you joking. You have very strong glutes. It has to be, right. right. But yes, it's the neuromuscular communication that he needed to work on there. But I think it pointed to to those two things. One, sometimes it's just about getting the nerves and brain to know to to send signals and fire those muscles. You also made a point that I think is another overarching point in these conversations, which is that most of the time where you're having the pain, if we're talking about soft tissue related injuries, is not where the problem is. The root cause is somewhere else. It's somewhere else in the connect chain that's not doing its job or that's locked up, immobile, weak, whatever it may be that is then pulling on or causing issues somewhere else. And so, so when you're trying to figure out these injuries, you have to look well beyond where just the pain is. Pain can be a great guide for managing activity, but you still, if you're going to solve it, you got to look beyond. So that's another overarching point here. But it's time to wrap up this conversation, Morgan. This has been awesome. 95 minutes of just pure gold information. Last question for you. If people want more information about you, where you're working now. And I don't know if you do anything virtually or not, but tell us. Absolutely. So I own Opal Movement Therapy, which is in Austin, and it's orthopedic, manual physical therapy, and sports performance training. And so I offer both in-person, hybrid, and digital services. And so a lot of my runners either work with me in person, work with me solely digitally, they might be out of state. Um, or we do sort of a combination approach. And so uh, you can find me on Instagram at Opal Movement Therapy, as well as my website, opalmovementtherapy.com. And I I absolutely love educating and I do a lot of workshops uh, around Austin. And I really just want to try to get some of these tools and some of this knowledge into more hands. And so if you have questions at all, feel free to reach out. Um, Absolutely love what I do. And i I love helping people understand their movement and their body better. And so that that's what I'm most passionate about. So I'd absolutely love it. This has been a pleasure. I've really enjoyed talking with you guys this morning. And I would say for somebody who doesn't know a PT that they can go to in person, who is going to have the, the information and credentials that we talked about, a digital appointment with Morgan would be a great first step 
because she can obviously help you in many ways, but also potentially point you to, to a local provider if needed to do in-person work. So thanks, Morgan, for coming on. This has been awesome. Very, very educational. And hopefully everybody learned something. All right, we will wrap it here. Thanks to Dr. Morgan Riggins for joining us. Thanks to James as well for helping me facilitate the conversation. Thanks to John G for sponsoring it. Thanks to Mondo Sports Therapy for introducing us to Morgan. And thanks to all of you for listening. As always, you can check us out at roguerunning.com or follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Rogue Running. Until next time, we'll talk to you soon.